The following audio is from Maple City Baptist Church in Chatham, Ontario. For more information about Maple City, please visit us online at maplecitybaptistchurch.com. Well, good evening, everyone. In just a few moments, we will be back in 1 Peter chapter 2. But this evening, I wanted to begin by quoting some verses from Psalm chapter 118, because I hope that as we get into 1 Peter chapter 2, having spent some time in Psalm 118, um, the impact of what Peter is trying to say will be more clear to us, more meaningful for us, because we understand more of the meaning that it would have had to the original audience. And so in Psalm chapter 118, the psalm is written by an anonymous author. We don't know who wrote it. But the, the psalmist here is proclaiming the kindness, the mercy, the love of God and how wonderful it is. And he begins in in verse 1, he says, Oh, give thanks to the Lord for he is good because his mercy endures forever. Let Israel now say that his mercy endures forever. So he's just so excited about the Lord and about his mercy and how wonderful God is. And he spends this whole chapter proclaiming the greatness of God's mercy and, and, and the fact that he is saved because of the mercy of God. But what's interesting is in verse 19, he gets very specific. He says, open to me the gates of righteousness. I will go into them and I will praise the Lord. This gate of the Lord into which the righteous shall enter. So he's speaking about a specific gate that the righteous will enter through. He says in verse 21, I will praise thee for thou hast heard me and art become my salvation. So there's a gate that the righteous will enter through and that God is his salvation. He says in verse 22, the stone which the builders refused is become the headstone of the corner. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. So as believers in Christ, we immediately hear what the psalmist is saying and we can relate because we say that that the gate of righteousness is Jesus Christ, who is the chief cornerstone. We say that there's one place that the righteous will enter and because of what God has did, done for us, he has become our salvation. And so when we read the stone which the builders refuse has become the headstone of the corner, we immediately understand exactly what he's saying. But I want us to think about what this would have meant for a Jew a thousand years before Christ came, what that would mean to them. Why would a psalmist, speaking of the Lord's salvation and his mercy and his kindness, all of a sudden be, bring up this stone which the builders reject. And that stone, as far as he knew, it was, was to come in the future, didn't know a whole lot about it. And, and the idea of that stone being rejected and then becoming the headstone in the corner, I'm not sure all of what that would have meant to this author. So it seems a little bit interesting. We can sing um, Christ alone, cornerstone, weak made strong in the Savior's love. Through the storm, he is Lord, Lord of all, and know exactly what we mean but I wonder what that author thought he meant. See, what I want to get at is that I believe that for a thousand years, Jews would have read this verse and seen how somehow there was this cornerstone, this chief stone of the corner that would be rejected and would ultimately become the headstone of the corner and see that this is something that God would do and wonder exactly what he was talking about. In fact, I even wonder if the psalmist didn't know for sure. I wonder if the psalmist wrote this and, and said, okay, it's, it's there. I, I believe God led me to write it. But for years and years, they would have 
thought about the Messiah coming and how that's connected to this cornerstone. And so Christ comes, and in Matthew 21, verse 42, he makes it very clear that he is the cornerstone. And then in Acts chapter 4, verse 11, Peter stands in the temple before all of the Jews, and he proclaims, This is the stone which was set at naught of you builders, which has become the head of the corner. Neither is there salvation in any other, for there is none other name under heaven given among men, whereby we must be saved. Imagine being in that temple, and for years, them wondering, what is he talking about? And then Peter finally being able to point to the Savior, to the cross, to the resurrection, and say, that is the cornerstone. And there's no salvation anywhere else. No other name given other than the name of Christ. Let's get into the book now of 1 Peter. We'll be getting re- reading back in verse 24. We actually just quoted these verses, but this, these verses connect with our passage this evening. And so 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 24 says, For all flesh is grass, and the glory of man is the flower of the grass. The grass withers, and the flower thereof falls away. But the word of the Lord endures forever. And this is the word which by the gospel is preached unto you. Wherefore, so we have a word that endures, that is perfect, that will last forever, that all flesh, every philosophy of man, every theory, every tradition, all of that will fall away and someday be meaningless, someday be worth nothing. But there's one word that lives and abides forever. And because of that, he says, wherefore, let us change, let us do something, let us lay aside all malice and all guile and hypocrisies and envies and all evil speaking. As newborn babes, desire the sincere milk of the word that you may grow thereby. If so be that you have tasted the Lord Lord is gracious. If you're a person here tonight and you've tasted the grace of God, you know the grace of God, you know what he's done for you, then he says, desire that word. You should want it. You should, you should, at every opportunity you have, go to learn more about it, study it, open it, read it, memorize it, be in it, trans- allow your life to be transformed by it. And the only way that happens is just by constantly allowing it to work on you. So we should desire that, and as we desire it, and as we recognize it for what it is, we will be changed. You want to know how a Christian becomes more mature in Christ? It's the Word of God. It's the Word of God through the Holy Spirit working on the hearts of his people. And so we need that. The problem is, we often approach the Word of God and the commands of God kind of begrudgingly. We often approach this truth and this command to desire the sincere milk of of the word almost with a, okay, fine, attitude. Don't we? Have you ever found yourself when you knew it was time for your daily devotion kind of going at it like, it's a duty, it's something I have to do. Okay, let's get this done. You know, there's not this like desire, this excitement, this passion for it. It's, it's like this begrudging duty that we just have to perform. And then, when we're asked to change, pff, I don't want to do that. I don't have to allow the word of God to change how I think. 
what I think about certain issues, right? I mean, you, you take an issue. How do you treat your enemies? How do you think about your enemies? There's a whole lot of, of those thoughts going on with all the events in the last few weeks. So how do we think about our enemies? Well, Christ says we ought to love them. Man, that rubs us the wrong way, though, doesn't it? That's not what we want our response to be. Right? We, we, we want to kill them. That's, and so we get into the word of God, and it, and it calls us to change, and we say, man, I don't know if I want to do that. It calls us to give up some of what our flesh wants, and we, we just we fight against it. We act as though God is sometimes persecuting us, that he's this controlling dictator trying to just ruin our lives, and it's the, the furthest thing from the truth. We have such a wrong perspective when we think this way. And it, it honestly, it drives me nuts. It drives me nuts for, nuts for a few reasons. One, because I look at our teenagers, I see that there's just this battle going on between, between this love for the world and love for the world's philosophies, as well as understanding that, yes, the, the Bible is true and Christ died for me. And I wonder that if, if the church as a whole would step up and be serious about their passion for God, and serious about their love for the cross and for the word of God, that maybe they'd have more examples to look to and say, people love it, and it brings them joy. Because what, what happens right now is, is they, like us, see it that way. Like God is trying to control us and ruin our lives somehow, and it's so far from the truth, but, but that's just what they buy into. We need some more people to be examples in our church. We need some more people to really step up and live out their faith. And it's, it's unfortunate that there's not enough. I heard a quote this week. It says, Christ will not taste sweet to us until sin tastes bitter. Sin will begin to taste bitter as we realize the sweetness of Christ. You get that, that the more you get closer to Christ, the more you'll see sin for what it is and for the destruction it is. It will never be easy, but at least you'll begin to see it for what it is. It says, we cannot behold both Christ and sin and find them beautiful at once. You can't look at both of these things and say, I love that and I want to build my life on that and I love Christ and I want to build my life on that. We can't serve two masters. It says, when we savor the bread of life, we lose our taste and appetite for the dusty things of this earth. Once we taste the goodness of Christ in the gospel, We long for more. And that kind of transformation shouldn't just be talked about in church. We shouldn't just come here pretending like that's what we want. There should be real change happening. There should be a real desire for the sincere milk of the word. And there will be obvious impact of that as we do it. And so we have this whole thing upside down. This is not a duty to perform that is to be looked at as a duty, this is an awesome privilege. We're the children of God. We have the word of God. We must live for more than this fleeting world around us. We must no longer be bound. We we are no longer bound in our sinful nature, so we must no longer allow ourselves to be bound to the sin that used to bind us. We have an inheritance that is kept by God's power. All of these things are privileges. They're immense, immeasurable privileges. And so as Christians, we should be looking at this this life that we have and and not thinking, 
oh man, I can't wait for glory because this just is terrible. We should be looking at this life now and say, now I get to be a child of God and I get to know the God of heaven. I get to have a relationship with him. I get to be in his word that he wrote, that, that it's inspired. It's, it's God breathed. I get to pray and commune with him. Here we have what's often called a book about suffering in 1 Peter. And it seems like Paul, Peter is constantly saying, look at the privilege you have. Look at the privilege you have. It is a privilege to be a child of God. And suffering is it's so far down on the list on the unimportant things. It doesn't change the privilege we have. It's not a book about suffering. It's a book about privilege. So let's get into verse 4 because Peter is going to explain for us more of this privilege in the following verses. It says, to whom coming? So he's speaking about God and the grace of God. He's speaking about Christ. He says, to whom coming? As unto a living stone, disallowed indeed of men, but chosen of God and precious. And so as soon as Peter says this, the minds of many of his readers would immediately go back to Psalm 118. This rock, this stone that was rejected by men, but chosen of God. It's something that God was doing, and it's marvelous in our eyes. They would immediately go back to that, and and they would say, okay, this is the Messiah that he was talking about. This is the one who was refused and rejected. This is the one who God has chosen, and he is precious. But the difference here that Peter adds is that he is not just a stone, but he's a living stone. A living stone. And that's important for us to remember. And I think it's important, it's clearly important for us to remember because so far, Peter has touched on this idea three times in like the first quarter of his letter. In verse, chapter 1, verse 3, he says, Blessed be God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again unto a living hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So he begins with, we have a living hope, we have a Savior who is resurrected from the dead. Then in verse 21, he says, who by him do believe in God that raised him up from the dead and gave him glory that your faith and hope might be in God. So this idea of of the fact that we serve a risen Savior, that Christ is alive, that he is a living stone is important. It is something we must remind ourselves on a daily basis. This, the truth that, that Christ is alive, that he's your mediator now, that he's with you, all of those things must, we must constantly remind ourselves of. They will change us. And so he says, those of us who have tasted the grace of God, those of us who have come to him, we've come to this living stone. And the verb tense here is not a past perfect. It is not something that happened one time. It's something that happens on a regular basis. We come to him. Every day of our lives, we come to him regularly. We come to the Savior who is chosen by God. He's precious beyond measure, and he is alive. And then in verse 5, Peter says something kind of crazy. He says, you also... As lively stones. Remember what he just called Jesus? The living stone? Now he points at them. He says, listen, I want you to understand this. He is alive, but you're also alive. You also, as living stones, are built up a spiritual house 
a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God by Jesus Christ. He uses this metaphor of a building to help us understand a really important truth. Yes, Christ is the chief cornerstone. Yes, he's alive, but he, that's, that's the beginning of the building. That is, that is, the whole building is built from that point. It's the most important part of the building. But we get to play a place. We have a part in God's plan. We have a part in God's kingdom. In God's spiritual house, we are one of the living stones. And, and as a living stone, we have these wonderful privileges. He called us here a holy priesthood. In the Old Testament, the Jews thought of the temple as the place where God dwelt. Right? So for them, if they wanted to go commune with God, they would go to the temple. And they would go to a priest, and a priest would act as a mediator between them and God. So they would come with the sacrifice that they wanted to sacrifice to God. They would give it to a priest, and the priest would take it to God, and then, and then come back to them with ultimately the, the result. So the priest was like the go-between. The temple was where God was. And so as a Jew, they would think of the temple as where God is, and a priest as the mediator between them and God. And now he says, we are a part of that temple. We are one of the stones that make up that building. And not only that, we are a holy priesthood. We get to go to God. You say, how is, it, how is that possible? I mean, back in the Old Testament, they had all these cleansing things. And, and, and the whole idea was to show the Jews and even the priests that they were unclean, not able to go to God. I mean, the, the high priest once a year had to do all of these different rituals just to clean himself up so he'd go to God in God's presence one time. The whole point was, you can't go before God. Nobody can. And now here we have us, as a holy priesthood, able to go directly to our Father. How is that possible? Well, he makes it clear to us how that's possible, because at the end of the verse he says, acceptable to God by Jesus Christ, or through Jesus Christ. So as we go to God through our Savior, now Christ as that mediator, our great high priest, and as we go to him, our, our, our sacrifices are acceptable. And, and now he, he does still command sacrifices, though. You notice that, right? He says we are to offer up spiritual sacrifices. Well, what's that about? Well, look at Romans chapter 12, verse 1. Paul writes to the church of Rome, He says, I I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God. He has spent 11 chapters explaining to them what the mercies of God are, what the gospel is. And now he says, because of that, by the mercies of God, present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. He says, use the life you have left. Use your body, use your stuff, use everything that you have to offer as a sacrifice to God. Live your life for God. This is not a command for the elders of the church. It's not a command to the apostles. This is a command to the church of Rome, the saints of Rome, the believers in Rome. And so if you're a believer at Maple City Baptist Church in Chatham, Ontario then offer up your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto God. Offer these spiritual sacrifices. Why? Because you are a living stone. You're part of God's house. And because what we do now, even though we're frail, even though sometimes our motives are imperfect, even though sometimes we fall, what we do for him now 
is acceptable because it's through Jesus Christ. And that's a wonderful thing. Verse number six. Peter provides a foundation for all of what he's saying. Back in the Old Testament, he says in verse six, Wherefore also it is contained in the scripture, Behold, I lay in Sion a chief cornerstone, elect, precious, and he that believes on him shall not be confounded. Peter here is quoting Isaiah chapter 28, verse 16, and we will get to Isaiah chapter 28 toward the conclusion of the message. Um, But what he's saying is, there is the chief cornerstone, elect and precious, and for those who believe, we will not be confounded. And we'll talk more about what the idea of being confounded is, because it is just a wonderful truth. And Because what Isaiah is doing is he's contrasting those who don't believe and their end with those who believe. So, if you're one of those people that you you like to set up for something that's going to happen later and and to keep your attention, we will get to that. It is an awesome truth. But let's move on to verse 7. Unto you, therefore, which believe, he is precious. But unto them which be disobedient, the stone which the builders disallowed, the same is the head of the corner. And that seems like a strange way of putting it. It It would make more sense for me, for Peter to say, Unto you which believe he is precious, but unto them which are disobedient, he is not precious, he is hurtful, he is bad. I mean, mean, to say something negative about him there, but he just quotes, the stone which the builders disallowed is is made the head of the corner. It, It seems like a strange quotation. Again, Isaiah 28 will help explain that. It says in verse 8, And a stone of stumbling... And a rock of offense, even to them which stumble at his word, being disobedient, whereunto also they were appointed. The chief cornerstone has a polarizing effect on people. For some it is precious. For those who believe, it is of high honor, of great value. It is precious beyond measure. But to those who are disobedient, he is rejected. He is an offense. He is something that does not fit in their lives. What he's doing is he's saying, here are other builders. And these builders are building their own house. And as they look to Jesus, and as they look to this cornerstone that God has provided, they look at him and they say, that's offensive to me. I don't want that as a part of my house. And so they reject him. And they disallow him. And he says, for those, it's a lot of trouble. And don't you see a lot of people building their own house in this life? You know, I've got this whole thing figured out. I don't need him. If you need him, you're just weak and you just got to fall on something. He's saying, this, this cornerstone, as good as it is for those who believe, it is equally bad for those who don't believe. Because there are ramifications for not just those who trust, not just those who have faith, There are. I mean, it's wonderful. Now we become living stones, a holy priesthood. But there are ramifications for those who don't believe because of the chief cornerstone coming. Again, Isaiah 28. So that's our text for this evening. And traditionally, I usually say, okay, we've gone through our text. We've explained it as well as I could. Let's get to the application. And I would have a few points of application. And if this was a normal night, I would speak of the privilege that it is to know the living cornerstone, the wonder of being living stones in the building of God, 
the fact that it's, it's just unbelievable that God has made us a priesthood, a, a holy priesthood. And I would speak of the privilege of now offering our lives as sacrifices. And those are, are great points, great truths here in our text. Instead, let's turn to Isaiah. Back in Psalm 118, we ask the question, why is that there? Why did the psalmist all, all of a sudden speak about his salvation in connection with the chief cornerstone, the one who was rejected by others who has become the head of the corner? Isaiah 28 helps us understand that. Isaiah is a prophet, and he was sent to warn Judah of the impending judgment of God. He's, he's speaking in a time where he has almost lived through the demise of Israel. The Assyrian army went to the ten northern tribes of Israel and took them all captives, destroyed the land, and now they're, they're known as the ten lost tribes. So now there's two tribes remaining, uh, Judah and Benjamin, and is, Isaiah is sent by God to warn them that the same thing's going to happen to them if they don't repent, if they don't try and live for God. And so he's warning them of this impending judgment if they did not repent. In Isaiah 28, verse 14, he says, Wherefore, hear the word of the Lord, you scornful men that rule this people which is in Jerusalem. So he's speaking to the leaders, the king of Jerusalem. He says, you need to hear this. This is the word of God to you scornful men. Because you have said, we have made a covenant with death. And with hell are we at agreement. When the overflowing scourge shall pass us through, it shall not come unto us, for we have made lies our refuge, and under falsehood we hid ourselves. It says, you scornful men, you leaders, you need to be very careful. You claim to have made a covenant with death. Now, what he's likely referring to is a lot of the kings, in order to protect themselves against invading armies, would go to other nations, other kings, and would say, listen, can we make a pact with you? We'll help you guys out, you help us out. Or or we'll give you some of our gold if you promise that when we're attacked, you come here to help defend us. And so they're making leagues with other nations, but these other nations are enemies of God. And so the problem is twofold. First of all, they're going to the enemies of God. And second of all, they're not going to God at all. They're not expecting or or asking God, their God, to protect them. This is a big problem. It's very possible he's speaking specifically about King Hezekiah because King Hezekiah made an allegiance with a pharaoh of Egypt named Turkana against the Assyrian army. And so he says, you need to be careful. You've made a covenant with death. Death meaning the the dead nations of the world. And with hell, you're at agreement. And and so when the overflowing scourge shall pass us through, when when the other nations come to destroy us, it won't come unto us. For we have made lies our refuge under falsehood we have hid ourselves. We have figured out how to protect ourselves. We have a refuge. It's these lies we've made. We have a hiding place. We don't need to worry. And this is what the world tells itself all the time. We're going to be just fine. When judgment day comes, we don't need to worry. Verse number 16. Therefore, 
Thus saith the Lord God, Behold, I lay in Zion for a foundation a stone, a tried stone, a precious cornerstone, a sure foundation. He that believes shall not make haste. And so what what they're doing is they're trying to figure out what's going to happen when their enemies come. And God says, I have laid in Zion a cornerstone. There is a chief cornerstone there. There is a sure foundation there. And if you trust in it, if you believe in it, then when the enemies come, you will not have to hurry. You will not have to make haste. You will not be confounded. You will not be ashamed. These are all the ways that the New Testament translates this verse, quotes this verse, being ashamed, being confounded. And all those things are true. If if you are attached and believing on the chief cornerstone, then when the enemies come, you will be at peace. There will be no need to worry because the cornerstone is there. But then he goes on in verse 17. He says, Judgment also will I lay to the line and righteousness to the plummet. And this is, this is a little bit confusing, but what he's saying is, I'm going to take these lies that the leaders of the kings of Israel are telling, I'm going to line them up against the plumb line of God's righteousness. And so we have the world, we have the, the lies, we have these covenants they're making, and I'm going to put them beside the righteous, the perfect righteousness of God, and here's what's going to happen. He says, And hail shall sweep away the refuge of lies, and the waters shall overflow the hiding place. Do you remember they said, we have a refuge? We have this hiding place? We've got the whole thing figured out? And then you take the judge of the universe, and you put your works and your ideas and your thoughts, and you you line them up compared to the judge of the universe? And he says, hail is going to sweep away that refuge of lies. There will be nothing left. Waters will overflow that hiding place. So you have no place to hide. He paints this scene for us. All of their works stand next to the plumb line of God's righteousness. They will be checked. They will be measured against the perfect standard of of God's holiness. And they will be found wanting. And so God's swift gavel of justice will fall. He will find the lies he will search them out, and their hiding places will be overrun. This is terrifying. I mean, this is, this is our God. God is not unaware of what's going on. And if he was going to take the people of God in Israel and say, this is how I'm going to treat those of you who don't trust in the sure foundation. If you're sitting here tonight saying, I'm not sure if I want to trust that cornerstone, then you should be scared. There, there should be some of this... I'm trusting in my own plan. I'm building my own building. How is this going to work out for me? Verse number 18, he says, Your covenant with death shall be disannulled. (laughs) You can make a a, a covenant, but it doesn't mean anything. I mean, really, you have no power to keep that covenant. You know, you're going to keep me safe. They're not going to keep you safe. They can't keep you safe. They can't protect you from God's judgment. And your agreement with hell shall not stand. When the overflowing scourge shall pass through... Then you shall be trodden down by it. That scourge that they're, going to, that they're going to protect you from, it's not going to happen. You're going to be trodden down by it. From the time that it goeth forth, it shall take you. For morning by morning shall it pass over. By day and by night 
and it shall be a vexation only to understanding the report. What he says at the end there is, when you simply understand what is going to happen, it will be a vexation. The word vexation means it'll be a sheer terror. It'll be terrifying to understand the judgment, let alone to go through it. It'll be terrifying when you start to get a picture of how God is going to treat treat those, how God is going to righteously judge those who don't come to the cornerstone. Terrifying. Sheer terror and trembling. I'll tell you something, the judgment of God is utterly terrifying. God is, is a God to be feared. He is an awesome God. It is your relationship to the chief cornerstone that, deter- that determines which side of the judgment you end up on. There is refuge. There is real refuge. There is a real hiding place. Jesus said, come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and you will find rest unto your souls. There is a place we can go where we can find rest, where when the judgment comes, we don't have to make haste. We won't be confounded. We won't be ashamed. Why? Because we're safe. We're under the chief cornerstone. We're, we're, we're in the building of God. But if you're outside it, it is utterly terrifying, and it is your relationship to Jesus Christ that determines where you stand on Judgment Day. Israel trusted in themselves. They trusted in the nations surrounding them. They did not trust in God. They would not run to God for protection. And so when the psalmist speaks of God's salvation and thanks God for, for the salvation that he offers and the mercy and the forgiveness in Psalm 118, and then he speaks about the cornerstone, it all makes sense. Because that salvation is only found in the chief cornerstone. In, back to Psalm 118, verse 8, he says, It is better to trust in the Lord than to put confidence in man. And this is exactly what Israelites were doing. They were trusting in man. He says it is better to trust in the Lord than to put confidence in princes, in the kings of other nations, in pharaohs. It's better to trust in the Lord. Verse 10, all nations compass me about, but in the name of the Lord will I destroy them. That's what you can say when you're trusting in the chief cornerstone. That no matter what the circumstances, no matter how much is against you, you will be saved from your enemies because the Lord will fight for you. He will destroy them. Verse 14, the Lord is my strength and my song and has become my salvation. Verse 17, I shall not die but live and declare the works of the Lord. Verse 28, thou art my God and I will praise thee. Thou art my God, I will exalt thee. Doesn't it seem like that psalmist is pretty excited about his God? Doesn't it seem like the psalmist maybe understands the difference that the cornerstone makes in his life? And it seems like the psalmist now understands his responsibility to live as living stones, right? To be a child of God, to act like it, to to speak of the praises of God, to be excited about it, to, to be willing to stand up and say, because of God, I am saved, and because of him alone. And so this message is designed to do a couple things. And the first one is this. If you don't know 
the chief cornerstone. If you don't know Jesus Christ as your Savior, if you've never asked him to save you, and I'm not just saying you don't, I'm not just asking if you know about Jesus. I'm not just saying, do, do you know that he died? Uh, do you know why he died? We can answer those questions, but so can the demons, right? And so what I'm saying is, if you've, if you've never put your faith and trust in God to save you, if you've never asked him to save you, then that is the only place that you will ever find refuge. And without him, there is only judgment. And so it's important for us, if we've never trusted Christ, to see Christ is the Savior and there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. And the second thing that I hope this message does is this. If you're a living stone, then please understand the privilege it is to be the children of God the privilege it is that we get to hold in our hands the word of God, the privilege it is that we don't have to fear any enemies, we don't have to fear that day of judgment because we know we're protected and safe under the cornerstone. Let's live as living stones. Become living stones. What a shame when we live like dead rocks. Let's live as living stones, as a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices to our God. Let's pray.